This episode was brought to you by Kimberly Clark Corporation. Poise by Kimberly Clark is the number one household leader in light and feminine care products and is the only brand in the category driving household growth. Poise's consumer-focused approach, centered on comfort, protection, and sustainability, makes it a leader in repeat customers, loyalty, and annual buy rates. Plus, Poise is the undisputed leader in sales, contributing 60% of overall growth in the category. If all of this tells us one thing, it's that Poise is the brand for light-end customers. Thank you to Kimberly Clark for sponsoring CGA Radio. Good morning. Welcome to CGA Radio. I'm your host, Grace Becker, and today I am joined with social entrepreneur and founder of A Better Life Foundation, Mark Brand. Good morning, Mark, and thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Grace. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. So first off, do you want to just tell us about your background and your career? I know there's a lot to cover, but if you want to start there. Yeah, well, I think I'll, I'll just focus on the stuff that will be relevant to our talk today. And uh, I am a social impact entrepreneur. I, I was named that before anybody really knew what that meant, uh, even me, including me. And so I've built restaurants and businesses and uh, brewery and farm and brick and mortar ground level tactile businesses that work in the areas of solution of disconnection societally. So trying to address the norm of the us and them and and break down those barriers, as well as create uh, very safe places to work and create beautiful food for those who are uh, suffering in the margins. So folks who are living in shelter, living in single room occupancy hotel, uh, who are being met by outreach teams. And so I have a centralized business that becomes the focus of most of the interviews. Uh, while I have five, the one that we talk about most is uh, under the umbrella of the Better Life Foundation or in partnership, I should say, uh, at the old Save on Meats historic building. It's been around for nine, since 19, 1957 in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Uh, which, as most folks know, is one of the most affected areas of mental illness, homelessness, displacement, and um, is the front line of the opioid crisis as well. And so we've been serving there for 11 years. We do a meal program that does about 1,500 to 2,000 meals a day, fluctuating, scratch-made, and uh, sensitive to both culture uh, and abilities to digest and all of those great things. Um, nutrition, and we have a forward-facing window that has a, a pretty famous token program that runs out of there uh, that's exciting, and that's been around since about 2013. Um, but my career started in cooking at 14. I got a job at a pizza shop and uh, learned how to make dough in my first week, and that was it for me with food. And that's 33 years ago this year. I just realized that the magic uh, that goes into food is not as tangible as I had thought. It's not as easy and cut and dry because if you've ever made bread or ever watched bread rise there is magic there's there's genuine energy and there's love and there's passion that goes into food and so it's always been a conduit to love for me and a conduit to my expression and i've owned restaurants that span the gamut from uh, traditional osaka style japanese to uh, ramen houses to um, casual fine dining cuisine to live music venues uh, and spent the last 25 of my well, 25 years of my uh, life as well being a DJ and deeply connected to vinyl and uh, funk and soul and rap music. And so I think that expressionism comes in many formats and I've used business as one of those tools, which is traditionally not looked at as an art, 
and I believe that it's particularly in the realms of food and music and art and how they traditional art forms and how they collide. It's the greatest opportunity that we have to remain connected and to do justice and advocacy work. So I think that would be a quick summary of sort of, I guess, energetically what I do. Yeah. It's very multi-sensory. You're, you're covering all of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we were born to use all of these pieces, right? And unfortunately, right now, we're spending most of them with thumbs and a nine-inch screen. So it's trying to get away from that and more back together. Yeah. So you touched on your foundation, A Better Life Foundation, and Save on Meats. Do you want to dive into a little bit more specifics on both of those and your token initiative program? Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I had the great honor of being the closing keynote at uh, your annual summit this year. And we got to talk about a lot of stuff with independent operators and just to take a step back and sort of frame and I'll, I'll use the businesses as examples here for certain. But it was an honor to speak with it was about 75 individuals who I believe are um, some of the last front lines of defense against full conglomeration. And in, in that full conglomeration, unfortunately, we see a lack of choice uh, and equity is removed from the system, which is the source will go wherever we decide and we end up with food apartheid and as others would say, food deserts. Um, mm-hmm. there's, I think it's much more intentional, um, as we know, with redlining in the history of that is the same with food security and sovereignty. And so these independent operators are truly holding those lines and still in community and communicating. So to be able to bring my business examples around waste food, around meal provision, around supportive employment and retention, around living wage stuff, around all of that was, uh, it was a real honor because as soon as I started talking, people started nodding. And I was like, oh, I know I'm in the right space here, right? I'm amongst Mm -hmm. my peers instead of um, speaking to a group, which is often the case with my my speaking, that um, we have to get a base level of understanding whereas the base level was already set. So we got to dig in deeper. And so when I speak to you now, the same thing is why I bring that into the room. Our operation, I took over a 21,000 square foot butcher shop that had been on a steady decline since the mid eighties, but was always a place of food security. Although the former owner had no idea that it was, he didn't know what that meant. He was simply a wonderful butcher and independent business person who serviced his community and his community was people who were really struggling on the lines of poverty, uh, mental illness, et cetera. And so he had a diner counter there and a large butcher shop where if you came in with 50 cents and slapped on the counter, he'd figure something out. And I love that ethics. I I loved watching him operate and he became a a mentor of mine. Uh, And as he was retiring at that point, I had nine businesses operating in the adjacent neighborhood gas town. They're all for-profit entities. And I wasn't happy. I had felt like I had achieved everything that I had set out to achieve 10x. Uh, We were incredibly successful, very award-winning on all levels. And I had met all the people I wanted to meet and got to do all the things I wanted to do, um, but felt very empty. I was like, this is not what I was supposed to be here doing. And that was just a a consistent, resonant thought for me. And as a spiritual but non-religious person, I was pretty lost, to be honest. And Al... Uh, approached me and said, Hey, I'm going to retire. And I said, that's amazing. He's like, but I don't want to sell the building unless I can find somebody to take over the butcher shop. I was like, you know, I love you, dude, but that's impossible. Nobody's going to want to take over that business. It would be genuinely insane. 21,000 square feet. Like what would you even do? It's, 
not not for nothing you kept it in great shape but it's a 70 year old business you know it's mm-hmm. it's got some issues and he was like well i would i was thinking you could take it over and at the time i was doing two renovations i had just taken another lease i was just in the mix and i said you know we don't have any kind of money to do this thing but as soon as he said it i kind of knew something was going to happen because 7 years prior i'd stood across the street with friends and said one day i want to do this project and I'd set that intention out into the world and, and to my dismay it had come back full circle and been like, here, here you go. You manifested so, it. Exactly. I set up that business to be the first social impact innovation hub, uh, essentially it's focused specifically on food and food security and food sovereignty in an urban setting. Right. So we are directly in the center of Vancouver, right? The original downtown, the original blocks, the original thoroughfare. And we, renovated that 21,000 square foot space in about 11 months and created a diner, a butcher shop, a second floor commissary kitchen, a bakery, a third floor offices. I left all the meat lockers and I had urban agrarians. I had everybody in there. they just like stewing and figuring out how we were going to do stuff. Fourth floor was a boxing gym and uh, an artist studio. And it was just this really special time that was 10 years ahead of its time. Mm. Nobody knew what I was talking about. I was like, we can recover all of this food. We have these 12,000 square feet of fridge and freezers. We can use this as a hub. We're we're already here. This is where people need it. And people weren't there yet. We're here now. We're getting here now. But I was a little bit too far ahead of that curve uh, in that thought. And so Savon's gone through many iterations. And now we are one floor and 5,000 square feet. And uh, we hold incredible advocacy events weekly where you can serve people in the neighborhood and cook and learn to cook. Uh, we, as I said, pump out shy of 2000 meals ish every day, scratch made fully compostable and biodegradable containers delivered in electric trikes, like really mindful of the environment in every way. Mm-hmm. And those have, you know, a dozen indigenous menu items on them because the population that we serve is unfortunately over oversaturated with, uh, the original peoples of the lands that we're on. And so we're just all of the things that we're doing. We move with intention and, uh, work with localized suppliers to manage their waste. And uh, a Better Life Foundation, I would say, is kind of like the the big hug that wraps around that business, which is people will come to us for food support. And if we don't have it, a Better Life Foundation will step up into that world and say, we got this. And so we do with a Better Life Foundation specifically, we'll work with training people on the the barrier of poverty and say, hey, this is a great way to stretch your dollar. This is, we teach kids how to cook. Um, We run events specifically designed to create more advocacy around what that looks like. And yeah, it's, it's a joy. I founded ABLF in 2013, I think now, and uh, mm-hmm. Save On was 2011. And they've run hand in hand ever since. And I founded a Better Life Foundation USA in 2018. And we work in a similar fashion on that side in New York, in California, uh, in working in the advocacy space, but also helping to really align and partner businesses that want to figure out how to do more. Mm-hmm. And so come in and, and run design thinking sprints and keynotes and uh, quote unquote consultancy uh, for good and for justice. And so that's the work as it sort of happens on both sides of the border. It's easy to point to the brick and mortar operation uh, that has really bent space and time to exist uh, mm-hmm. because it, it's not all conventional reason. And we, I had a conversation with a dear colleague uh, two nights ago and he was talking about quantum physics. And I said, you know, I often think about Savon as having been able to break into the fourth dimension. 
because none of the PLs made sense. None of the EBITDA yeah. made sense. None of it made any sense. And yet I like white knuckled this thing all the way through because I knew how critically important it was to have this as an archetype to say, mm-hmm. we can do this, these small spaces that have been abandoned all over the world. And out of them can come beauty, safety, employment, advocacy, food, and it's real. And so those, those are two of the projects I'm most passionate about for certain. Wow. And part of Savon's work has been this token token initiative. Uh, can you explain a little how that works and the impacts you've seen of that work in the community? Definitely. Yeah, I'd be honored to. And the token project, I'll, I'll let you know, was the biggest media story we ever had. And I, on the back of having an Oprah Winfrey reality TV show, the token project was bigger. It was wow. bigger. It was more impactful. It was, it just, it captured the imagination in a way that polarized people. It really started conversation. Um, we were lauded and vilified and it was, it was amazing. It was exactly the moment it was supposed to happen. And so in 2013, one of the biggest things that we face as challenges in neighborhoods like Skid Row, the Mission Tenderloin, the downtown east side, parts of the Bronx, uh, and lots of parts and boroughs of Brooklyn and New York. And in every city, there's, there's a neighborhood that is polarized and misunderstood, largely misunderstood. And why it's misunderstood is because we don't want to look at it. And so we don't want to understand that, for example, veterans go to war and fight for us, get addicted to opioids because of injuries, come home, can't afford those opioids and move to street drugs because they have an addiction that we created. We don't want to, we don't want to look at these things mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, society, we've agreed this is a contract that we do this with people. And so when we start to look at the real issues, it's very challenging for people because they look at the system and they're like, wait a sec, I'm a cog in this wheel. And what can I do? And so when people feel completely helpless, it's a terrible thing because either compartmentalize and shut it down or they feel depressed about it and they feel anxiety and they feel as a hugely growing part of our population does in and around everything from the homeless crisis, poverty, disease and infection, climate change, all of the things that are pressing on us every single day, there needs to be some levers and some releases to start to understand and have conversation. And in this particular neighborhood, I saw the gentrification of it happening. I saw a million dollar condo on one side of save on $300 single room occupancy room on the other side. And that's seven steps away from each other, right? Seven Mm -hmm. broad steps, let's call it 10 short ones. And so if the neighborhood continually looks like that, what is the conversation so people can understand each other, Mm -hmm. right? So if there's somebody asking for money, nine times out of 10 in research, actual research, in nine times out of 10 or more, people do not give money. And I was interested in that because I give money and, and that's mine and my choice and my autonomy to do so. But in asking people more and more why they don't, they said, you know, I don't want to give people money that they might use for drugs or alcohol. And that bias is terrible, but is a bias nonetheless. And people can do whatever they want. And so instead of designing and pressuring people to face their bias and change the way they behave and give people money, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to happen. That's genuinely not real. And I think this is where we lose so often. So I said to myself, I wonder if there was a closed currency or a way that people could interact easier in a way that they felt trusting that people would actually get food if they were hungry. Because generally people are like, hey, can I get some money because I'm hungry? Mm-hmm. 
So with the team brainstormed away and then just had a lightning bolt moment where it was like, oh, I know what we can do. And so created this little plastic coin, had our logo on it. I have a three-story neon sign that's been there since the 50s with a giant pig on it with a dollar sign on its belly. Put that on one side. On the other side said sandwich. And that's what we started with, with sandwiches. Now we do hot meals. It's beautiful. But I said, if you want to give somebody this, I can guarantee that they'll come and exchange it for a sandwich. And we had vegan options and gluten-free options and everything was scratch made and super fun. And the window was facing the street. So people didn't have to come inside if they didn't want to, didn't feel mm. safe to. But if they wanted to, they absolutely could then have a hot coffee or a juice or whatever else they felt like anytime we were open. And I thought this would be an incredible social experiment and that would maybe, maybe at best we would do two or three of these a day. And if two or three conversations happen in a neighborhood that's about five to 6,000 people, and that happened every day, that eventually everybody would start to get to know each other and start to see what the problems look like, like I get to, because I was on the streets every day talking to people for 10 plus years. I'm coming into, damn, my 18th or 19th, you know? So mm -hmm. I know all the folks, rich, poor, in between, doesn't matter. Like you just see everybody and I'm, I'm from the East Coast, so I'm very conversive with people. I love to <laughs> say hello, I love to engage. I was like, wouldn't it be beautiful because I understand the issues because of my engagements, if everybody else could understand the issues because of theirs. And that's their choice and their autonomy. And they can use that at their own leisure. And the first day we did 120. And wow. it exploded. It just exploded. People came down. Seven-year-old kids were like holding bake sales and saving their money from three suburbs away and like coming down and handing them out on the street and engaging with people. And it went insanely viral. And other folks were creating different things like suspended coffees and suspended pizza slices and tokens for other things. And it just became this energetic wave of, I knew people wanted to help and I know people want to help, but they just don't know how within the parameters of what they feel safe and comfortable doing. So it was just a tool. Mm -hmm. And that tool is for me, one inflection point. And that inflection point generally in my, in my time doing this, in almost 10 years of it and almost 180,000 redemptions, we see that that's a starting point for people, right? It's a, oh, I got to know Tyler this morning and Tyler's actually, do you know Tyler's story? And people come back, be so excited to share the story. They're like, yeah. yo, do you know that Tyler actually just found out that his best friend and his wife were sleeping together and he went into a spiral <laughs> of booze and he left Winnipeg on a bus and came out here and he's been addicted, to, you know, he's been addicted to heroin ever since, but he's a really nice guy. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Tyler washes windows for us and does some general maintenance. Like, wow. Like, you, you, we've just decided that there's, they're different species almost, right? That we don't know mm -hmm. that people are just people. And the second that we realize that we've been through that critical event, that that's happened to us and we had a support network that we were very lucky was there for us, a couch to sleep on, somebody to bail us out. All of us go through this human experience. Some of us don't have the network or the people or the the family or the ability to push through shame and guilt. And that's where a lot of this ends up. And so yeah. the token program was just a, a lever to have those conversations. It breaks that wall down. And if you wanted to, yeah, if you wanted to, for sure. if you want, if you're open, other to people, it. <laughs> the other side of that coin was people like, you're saying that people who are on house can't be trusted with trusted with money. I was like, I didn't say that. You said that. All yeah. I said was, you can get a sandwich for this gift certificate. You're saying all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just run a shop. Yeah. Whatever you, you know, and people, you're always a mirror. Whatever it is, is a mirror for folks, right? And their own 
insecurities or feelings of injustice. And in every keynote, including yours, you're going to raise some hairs on next because you're dealing with uncomfortable subjects. But we societally have gotten so uncomfortable with having uncomfortable conversations um, or having discourse where we don't agree. And it really truly is you're on my side or you're on the other side. And that polarization has led us to this place Mm. that we're in right now. So the token project was part of that. Wow. Thank you. So you mentioned, uh, I don't, that you spoke to our group of independent operators at our symposium in January. Um, how was that experience for you? you? You mentioned, but how was that experience for you? And in your eyes, what role can these operators or grocers play in um, ending hunger and your mission? Yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I had the best time. Again, it's like it's speaking to people who were surprised that I spoke their language. You know what I mean? I think that a lot of times you go to a conference and you're like, oh, this is great. And this is motivational. And this will teach me how to manage my time better. And this person summited Everest. And that's really cool. But it's <laughs> rare that somebody comes and is like, okay, so how much, what's your shrinkage look like? Like, what's your waste? And cool. Let me tell you about this program I created. So I think the, you know, one of the focal points for me is during the pandemic, we became one of the last spots it was still operating every single day to create food for people who were desperately in need. So we went from, at that time, we were only doing 900 meals to about 3,500 a day in a week. And in that process, which was insane, in that process, <laughs> you know, we got to a place of where we hit a tension point of we don't have any more money. And I've hit that tension point so many times in this particular business, but people were starving. You know, shelters weren't getting supply. There was also, there was scarcity of everything. But yet, waste continues, right? So waste is always a factor in every part of production and every part of grocery and every part of all of it. And so we connected with a couple of different organizations who are working tech platforms on how to be the intermediary between grocery stores and people who wanted to do waste recovery, which is like nobody. <laughs> and so <laughs> they, would, they, they connected us with one grocery store to start. And I hired this young chef. Martin, who's amazing, who's coming out of Italian, like had done the whole brigade system, was a real chef chef. And I said, how would you like to do a black box competition every single day with yourself? Like from a cooking show. And he was like, I would love that. Black box comp, for those listening that don't know, is essentially you get presented with a black box. It has 10 ingredients. You have to make something. Like chopped. We see the, exactly. You see this on the cooking network all the time, right? And so our food network. So he was like, yeah, I would love that. And I was like, the best part about it is the winners of the competition or how many meals you can make out of that, that go to shelters to people who have no food right now. And he's like, dude, this is my, this is my dream job. And I was like, great. <laughs> it would be mine too. So show up, let's do this thing. So we put one grocery store on, we had this one person, we already have the electric tricycles that deliver our meals. So they were picking up the groceries for us. So zero emissions as part of their routine and moving around and then delivering the meals at end of day to shelters that would be hot by meals and you know like meatball rigatonis and beautiful stuff going out this guy's you know great cooks can cook Mm. but we started to see the metrics of what we were doing and the metrics are wild i'm like how much did we recover and so i think you know in the first year and this is ballpark figuring because i don't have it in front of me but i think it was just shy of 20 tons of recovery offsetting I think it was just shy 70,000 kilograms of carbon out of sequestered that would have gone into landfill. And then we fed tens of thousands of people. And that was off one grocery store's waste. 
So that is now three grocery stores. Uh, we have the head of that project, Eileen Stanley, who's amazing, who comes to us from a long career in different cooking spaces, but she's our den mother and she helps organize some volunteers around it. And we had to create about 2,000 square feet of space for it. Shares a kitchen, it took over the diner kitchen. We have so much storage and we're just going through and being able to create more and more of this archetype of what it looks like to not only recover the food, but to measure it and create best practices and create recipe guides. And so we're in the, in the process right now of creating a 21 day recipe guide that we can share with anyone and say, yeah, these are the most commonly shrinked items because people won't buy brown bananas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's all the ways to use them. You literally need a four, four burner stove. And then this is the best way to cup and to ship. And this is how to approach folks. And in a time where grocery costing is going up so high, and food banks are seeing an unprecedented push and people are just hungry. There's literally articles coming out in the paper being like, here's how you skip breakfast. Like, this is not, mm. this is not how we solve this. <laughs> food is a birthright, first of all. Like, that's a full, full stop statement. Mm. Food, water, and shelter should be a birthright for landing on this planet. And we have messed it up. And so I think the grocer's role is what they're already doing right? They're competing mm -hmm. against other. They're creating very special opportunities for both employment, community engagement. They're already contributing so much. They were rhyming off the charities that they contribute to. And I was like, oh, these are hyper-specific and amazing. I know a bunch of these in Oakland and Santa Barbara, et cetera. So they're already working hard, but the wasting really sparked the imagination for folks. And so mm -hmm. I had a bunch of meetings afterwards um, and they were like, cool, can you help us? I was like, I can guide you. For sure. And I'm excited to share this information with you. And I think you'll see a bunch of projects come back to the symposium next year um, that have onboarded this. And if you think about if one store does something out of this, and let's say they create 50 meals a day, mm. right, just, just even that, to say that almost you know 18,000 meals went to the community based on this small thing, people get the itch. And when grocers in particular, who are service people, they're bread service people. They love showing up for their community. It's why they get up in the morning. To give them more tools is a real gift. Absolutely. So you did touch on it, but if if grocers are listening to this and they say, okay, what is the first step? What what would you tell them to starting this process? Yeah. Do you have a hood vent? You know, do you, do you have a place where you can cook? Um, a lot of the stuff that we do at a recovery is fruit salads and salad-based stuff as well. People really love fruit. They love fructose. They like really crave that sugar. And so we do tons of recovery fruit salads. And that requires a double hand sink, some gloves, a knife, a cutting board, yeah. and some, some connectivity to the people who are in shelter <clears throat> who would love to take these things every day. Um, and just being making that part of your process and something you can shine a light on once you feel like you've really gotten your feet underneath you. But I think, you know, know, know what you put in your garbage and just stop putting it there. Mm. And if you have a kitchen that's already operating, use it extra, throw an extra couple of shifts on there and, and make it make sense. Um, nobody who is in that business wants to throw anything in the compost or in the, in the garbage. And I, in my time of learning to cook all over the world and working in diverse places from Italy through to the Bronx, seeing how people with lower economic ability cook with things and make sure not to waste 
is the exact same as watching chefs cook. Mm. And so if you take that ethos into your business and say, we can no longer say that a $28,000 yearly waste bill is okay. What if we could take that and make it 20 the first year, make it five the next year and take all of that product and put it into the communities we already serve in a meaningful way? What's not to like? What's not to like? (laughs) Um, So these issues you're tackling, they're huge. Some may say overwhelming. Do you have any words of wisdom for folks that may feel daunted and um but want to help just to to kind of push on and do what they can to help yeah i mean let me synthesize that last statement and just like start with what you have mm-hmm. you know it doesn't you don't have to um, quote unquote help everybody it's really about if you help one person in a meaningful manner you've done more than 95 percent of the planet with your life so that it's enough, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, and with our teams, we started with one individual who became one of my best friends and rest in peace, Michael Haggerty. But that was the start of me understanding how to help more. And that turned into thousands and that's turned into millions. And so start with what feels right and ask a lot of questions. There are no stupid ones and really listen mm-hmm. and be mindful of the education around your own language and how you show up. And living intentionally and in service together uh, is literally what we're put here for. Mm. Thank you. So what do you see? I know you have your overall mission, but what are you focusing on maybe this year or kind of your your upcoming chapter of life? What What are you doubling down on? I mean, this is a perfect example, right? And so it's exponential impact. And how do you do that? And that's through education and through spending time. So I have my own uh, radio show and podcast called Better. It's an iHeart original. We did our season one and I bring guests like Gabo Mate. Um, Our closing guest was Rick Doblin around MDMA therapy and everybody in between. And I think the point of the show is exactly what I try to do or what I do do with my keynotes. And that is bring information in a distilled manner that can impact your life that you can put to use immediately, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's sort of the focus of my, the rest of my career at this point. I've built every brick and mortar, I've done everything, I've traveled everywhere and cooked everywhere and worked with everybody from the Vatican to the United Nations and everybody in between. I've achieved those things to see where I would be of most impact and where I'm of most impact is with absolutely everyday folks. Mm. Because the language and the tools and what we have learned, wisdom uh, and experience from deep failure should be what we're teaching in school. (laughs) Financial literacy and cooking should be the only two things you do from one to six. (laughs) You know, like we've got it so backwards. And so we come out maladjusted and definitely not ready for what's in front of us. And we see society really in, in the capital markets dominating us with everything from energy drinks to constant fast food which just keeps us able to push forward but doesn't allow us to actually center into ourselves and figure out what's what's important for our lives and for those of others now there's an exception to this rule which is in triage everybody shows up and we see it in crisis and so i just want to keep teaching as much as i can mm. wow 
Well, thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. Um, it, it was very inspiring to hear all the work you've done and all the work you'll continue to do. And um, thank you for sharing with us uh, what our community can do to further the mission. So thank you so much. My pleasure for being here. And I can't wait to see everybody at the symposium again. And yes. all of the other spaces that we will convene and continue this work forever. Absolutely. That's the spirit. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take great care.